This is the Vince Salerno Podcast, episode 34. On today's episode, I'm joined by Andrew Coltenuk to talk about cinematography, some of the general things, some of the major changes, and some influential cinematographers throughout the years. Also, we're discussing the newest category in the Oscars, popular movie. Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth might not be in Star Trek 4, and much, much more. So sit back and relax, because the Vince Salerno Podcast starts right... Hey folks, welcome to the Vince Salerno Podcast on this, uh, we're recording on a Saturday. It is August 18th, 2018. I'm your host, as always, Vince Salerno, and uh, yeah, it's been, it's been, I think it's been a couple weeks or a couple months since the last time I did an episode. Um, Last time I had Rose Dayton on the show, and obviously one of my closest friends and uh, longtime Star Wars fan, we talked about... uh, Solo, some changes in our opinions on The Last Jedi. We talked about the future of, of um, Star Wars going forward. Uh, we talked about Star Wars 8. We talked about the fact that Lando's coming back. And since then, we've heard news that um, a lot of major, major uh, characters are coming back, including Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia. Uh, surprisingly, since uh, Carrie Fisher obviously passed away several years ago, unfortunately. But um, looks like Episode 9 is shaping up to be a uh, very satisfying conclusion to the Skywalker series, but maybe not the saga? I don't know. We'll have to discuss that some other time. But um, we have uh, some pretty cool topics to discuss today, and I have a very special guest with me who um, actually, I think this is a first, uh, first person to approach me to be on the show um, <laughs> as semis are causing a muck outside. Sorry about that. We're recording in my living room because um, we have a lack of um, soundproof rooms. But anyways, um, yeah, first person... Um, Maybe first or second, but definitely the first person in a while to reach out to me and say, hey, I like your podcast. I want to be on it, and I want to talk about things. And, uh, um, yeah, it's my good friend, Andrew <laughs> Andrew um, Kaltenuk. That's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, gosh. I was – yes. Okay. <laughs> I feel terrible. I've been, I've been messing up his name. For the past several weeks, and I think I've, I finally got it right, or close enough, right? Yeah, yeah, Okay. You if you If I ever mispronounce it on the show again, just feel free to just say, nope, Vince, you're wrong. <laughs> um, so, Andrew, yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, um, first of all, thank you for having me, Vince. Of course. Um, I came from Colorado, and I was, I'm a transfer student. I was doing a uh, associate's degree out there. And decided that I wanted to pursue film more in depth. So came out here to Escondido. And I've been at a school there. And currently I'm taking various classes. But mainly interested in directing, cinematography, potentially screenwriting as well. And uh, really uh, just working on that for the moment. Nice, nice. And you've worked on a couple of projects uh, over the past six to nine months I'd say right yeah yeah how, uh, how has that been it's been good I've been on uh, upwards of uh, 46 sets in the past nice I didn't even months. count when I was in I was when I was an undergrad I I, no, I, I still don't count but <laughs> good for you on counting <laughs> it's uh yeah it's been quite the experience I've done everything from being a PA to directing uh, a couple of my own small projects not had the chance to do anything big yet but that should change uh, coming up 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's that's great because I think when you first come into college for filmmaking, it's really that first year is about um, testing the waters, just getting on sets, getting your name out there, learning as much as you can. The second year is pretty much trying and, and failing. And, you know, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with failing at that point, but really allowing yourself to fail so you know what the do's and don'ts of filmmaking is so that once you get to your third year, at least at JP Catholic, to get to your third year when you have the opportunity to work on something as big as a senior project, you're ready to, um, you're, you're at least on the on the way to becoming fully developed as a as an artist, as a filmmaker. So um, yeah, it sounds like you're doing it right. <laughs> yeah, thank you, absolutely. Cool, yeah. Um, so yeah, Andrew's here. Uh, we It's funny, we, we uh, when we talked about being on the show, I asked him like, well, what, what do you like to talk about? And he said, um, Cinematography, as you mentioned, you like like doing cinematography. You want to be a cinematographer, so uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Which is a subject I don't, I haven't touched on in the past. I think I've mentioned like my, my favorite cinematographers, Roger Deakins being one of them. Mm, um, and I'm not saying that's because it's like the bandwagon thing to say. <laughs> I genuinely like love almost everything I've seen from Roger Deakins, and he's he's. I mean, really unknowingly, um, he's been part of some of my favorite films. Like, I loved, I loved Skyfall. Even before I yes. knew he was on Skyfall, I just loved the heck out of that movie. But let's not get into that right now. Let's save that for when we actually get into our topic of the week, which is cinematography. And Andrew's going to pretty much lead that conversation for us. But let's get into our top three. A lot's happened since, um, since the last time I did an episode. And again, just because of that and many other things, I haven't had a chance to... Um, talk about a lot of things like I said I want to talk about the casting announcements announcements for Star Wars episode 9 um, but we have three pretty big stories that have been circulating in the media uh, first of which number one the Oscars are going through some major changes starting uh, with next year's Oscar ceremony some for the best some for the worst um, I believe the three changes they're initiating the first is they're not going to screen uh, certain awards, like I don't know, like some of the the less glamorous ones, or the less the ones that people don't um, want to really care much about, like sound design or sound mixing or, or um, costume design or short film or documentary. Which I get to I just touch on that for a brief moment. For to one end, I am a little upset about that because. Who cares if it's not the sexy thing to show on an award ceremony? It's an important part of the process. And for us filmmakers, it's really cool for for people in those specific jobs that don't really get a lot of recognition. You know, it's not like the sexy job like directing or acting or producing or cinematography. It still has a... It still is so important. Like, every single job on set on a film is so important. And it's important for us to take note of that and, we're, and if we're not screening those um you know we're not giving that person their due credit for you know recognition um so i i, they, I think they said that it was going to be like they they would still like show a condensed recapped version of it but they wouldn't show the actual thing <sighs> whatever i mean i guess they're still getting an award or just not being screened on tv it's fine i get it um the second thing they said which is really not on inconsequential in my mind they're gonna keep to that like three hour runtime which is like okay I didn't think you were not going to do that but fine <laughs> uh, but the 
third and the biggest and most controversial change they have initiated is the Oscars have had have added a new category, and that is um, the Academy Award for Most Popular Film. Now, no details have been released yet, but I'm assuming it has to do with a response to Black Panther, which has gained so much um, love from fans and critics alike. Uh, it really is a phenomenal movie. And personally, I, I do think it's wor worth a yeah, Best Picture nomination, Best Director nomination. Um, just as I think, um, you know, I, I, I'm of the opinion that, like, Logan last year should have gotten yes. a Best Picture nomination, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actress. Like, all the categories, really, it should have been nominated for all that. And it got... And nominated for Best Original Screenplay, and I believe it won for Best Original Screenplay, or, oh. or Best Adapted Screenplay. Correct. Uh, so I guess that's a win. But to me, this is the Oscars, or the Academy specifically, not wanting to acknowledge that blockbuster films can land in the same ballpark as, for lack of a better term, let's just say Oscar-caliber films, like, like your La La Land and your Moonlights and your... Um, your Manchester by the Seas and, you know, your Godfather, stuff like that, which I have been just completely against. Like, I think, I'm pretty sure when Star Wars The Force Awakens came out, I rooted for that movie to get, like, Best Directing nomination, <laughs> Best Cinematography nomination. Um, cause, I mean, because I thought it was a good movie. It's simple as that. If, if something is a good movie and it checks all the boxes in terms of what makes a good movie, there's no reason why it shouldn't be considered in any award category, especially Best Picture. And with this specific year, we have Black Panther, which is not just a great superhero film, a great Marvel film, a great action blockbuster. It is just a great milestone in in just cinematic blockbuster history, where it's the first um, like 99.9% .9 all African-American cast movie in a long time. First movie in that... that with that whole with an all African American cast to gross like over a billion dollars and it's actually grossed over it's the first third movie to gross over 700 million domestically yeah exactly so it's it's really creating waves and um you know some people will argue it's political shut up just open your open, broaden your horizons and watch the movie and enjoy it think what you want but i don't know i just get so annoyed when it's like oh it's political because it's an all-black cast it's like can't you just enjoy things don't ruin things people come on um but even infinity war like i loved infinity war and i think it's i think it's to me it's the best movie of the year so far like nothing's really trumped it for me but then again i'm a huge marvel fan so maybe i'm biased but i don't know <laughs> but i think i think the impact that movie had deserves oscar recognition as well it's just, it, it, I don't think about, like, oh, did this movie make me cry? Or does this movie feature, deal with um, racism or, or, or gay lesbian couples or stuff like that? It seems like that's sort of the generalization of Oscar movies. Not to get too political, but that, I think that's what it is. And so I just wish that the Academy would cast a very wide net for what qualifies for a Best Picture movie. And this is a cop-out. Really, it, to me, it's a cop-out for not wanting to acknowledge movies like Black Panther or Avengers or 
you know, the last any of the Star Wars movies that which I think could reach certain potential for Oscar categories besides cinematography, sound mixing, stuff like that. It's a cop out. So I don't know, Andrew. What do you, what are your thoughts on all this? Well, I think um, there are both positives and negatives to this um, for sure. Um, one thing is that it'll give it'll give movies that are big blockbusters the chance to have a category that they can finally be nominated in um, that'll actually be recognized and so I think that's that's a good thing um, and it'll give especially action films and comedies the chance uh, to be nominated mm-hmm. um, because one one of the big things that I've been reading is um, you know how many of the films in the past several years like since 96 that have won um, best Oscar do you actually remember like I know Lord of the Rings is a big one but besides that um, and Moonlight of course mm-hmm. but besides that you don't really remember who the big Oscar nominated films were whereas you remember other films like Seven or um, the Mission Impossible films or these ones that really stick right. with you yeah so it's been a big question of are the Oscars becoming too quote unquote artsy? Yeah. Um, and so one of the things, one of the negatives that I think is associated with it, which I thought was very interesting, is that will it change how filmmakers choose to film, especially if they put a cap on how much mo- money the movie brings in. For example, if mm, yeah. if a film makes more than $100 million, it'll be considered in the, um, what's the new category called? Uh, most popular, the, the Academy Award for Most Popular Film. The Academy Award for the Most Popular Film, as opposed to if it makes $99 million, it will be considered a best picture. And so will that cause filmmakers to um, choose to pull their movies from the theaters once it hits that 99 million so that it's chosen for best picture as opposed to mm. the new category which I will continue to forget the name yeah I, forgive me for that so I think it's going to it could potentially come down to do you want more money or do you want more acclaim right and I think it's interesting you mentioned the you know are is the academy focusing too much on like is is, is, is it too artsy I think is what you said and um, I think that's that's a problem, especially when because the thing about this award is it's taking the artistry out of the Oscars. Yeah, it's like oh, if this movie because popular immediately when you say popular, I think okay, so the one that got the most buzz on social media, the one that got that made like a billion five hundred million dollars opening weekend or opening or its first run during its box office run or um that that just you know it almost takes out like the qual like you know let's say for example um oh gosh i can't think of a good like a bad movie that came out that was supposed to be really good um okay i just saw i just watched valerian in the city of a thousand planets today horrible movie (laughs) but it did have a lot of like traction and I don't know if it made a lot of money but I know it made a you know it at least made it into the top five but didn't you know eventually it became a bomb but say that movie as terrible as it is made like 500 million dollars or to a billion dollars and we have this award 
it's a shitty movie. Excuse me, I'm trying not to swear on, on, on the podcast. <laughs> it's a bad movie, but d- does that matter? If it's popular, is that all that matters? So you see, it's like it's taking artistry out of the Oscars because that's what it's all about. And the, the fact of the matter is, like you mentioned Mission Impossible, actually, I just saw that last night, and I thought that was amazing. Wow. Easily, Absolutely. easily worth Oscar attention. So movies like Mission Impossible... Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War. Um, I, I can't think of anything else that's come out this year, but, um, you know, it's, it's just like what counts, what qualifies as a popular movie? Like, is it, is it well, I mean, like Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs. Like, there's just this wide net of movies that it's like, what's, what is it? Yeah. So I think we need to, we need more details on this, this category to really understand exactly what it, what it is. But I'm just looking at the list of movies that I've seen so far in 2018. Um, just, you know, I, I, I've said Avengers, Black Panther, Annihilation. I love Annihilation. It's in my top four. Eighth Grade, Isle of Dogs, Mission Impossible, Fallout, Incredibles 2, Hearts Beat Loud, Game Night, A Quiet Place, Ready Player One, I Think We're Alone Now, uh, Deadpool 2, Sicario 2, The Cloverfield Paradox, Death Wish, Pacific Rim. It's like, where where are we letting these movies have a chance? Like you said, it's it's good that we're letting blockbuster movies at least have a chance in the Oscar category. But to say, like, what is popular? What does that even mean is really what I'm getting down to. And I just, I, I immediately just go to those things. Like, it, it has to be social media. It has to be box office. It has to be, like, how many people are buzzing about it in general. Mm-hmm. And that's not a good thing because we're we're acknowledging how how much money these movies make and how popular they are, not how good they are. Because, like I said, um, I'm just trying to think of a bad movie that I've seen this year. Uh, Pacific Rim Up Uprising. I hated the movie. Uh, totally shammed anything that was good about the first movie. Say that movie, as terrible as it is, makes a bunch of money. Is it now considered into the best popular because it made a lot of money and it got a lot of buzz because it's a franchise? And that's not fair because there are movies that are ten times better than Pacific Rim Uprising that deserve to be in this. So, I don't know. I hope the Academy really reconsiders its its thoughts on this and maybe if we need to have an a individual category for these movies, even saying that... I was going to say that's fine, but it's still very problematic because you have issues like, okay, what about like the best comedy award? What about the best action film award? What about the best romantic film award? It's just, there's so much, it's a complicated topic right now. And I really hope that they, you know, sort of backpedal and, and, um, you know, we really see the benefits of just letting good movies be part of the Oscars, no matter not being biased to whether it's the big budget blockbuster movie, or whether it's a small indie film. Yeah, I'm I'm rambling right now, so let's just move on to the next thing. But hopefully, I'm hoping this changes. But we'll see what happens. Okay, topic number two. Uh, we all know that uh, Star Trek IV, uh, the fourth film in the um, newly rebooted J.J. Abrams movies, is coming out. Um, directed by S.J. Clarkson, who is going to be the first female to direct a Star Wars movie, which is really cool. Um, So there's a bit of a hiccup. So this fourth movie is uh, the storyline 
um, is supposed to feature Chris Pratt and Chris Hemsworth in the movie. Chris Pratt. Chris, Chris Pine. Chris Pine. So many Chris's. Gosh, <laughs> dang it. Chris Pine, who obviously plays um, Captain James T. Kirk. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, for those of you who don't know, actually played um, Kirk's dad briefly in the beginning of the very first J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie. So, as we know, or most Trekkies know, time travel is very much a thing in Star Trek. So, the idea is introducing time travel into this J.J. Abrams universe so that Kirk that dad Kirk and son Kirk can meet in the same movie. And I remember this being floated around like after Star Trek Beyond came out. And I was like, yeah, that sounds really exciting. I'd love that. Let's, let's see that. And now that it's getting a director, we're getting more traction. The deals are starting to come out um, between the director and the studio and the actors for them to be signed on and for salary and stuff. Uh, and there's been a bit of a snag with Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth because given that they're in popular demand they're part of dc and marvel movies they're asking for um more money than paramount is willing to give them i believe they had like a set um compensation package uh lined up for these movies and because star trek movies generally don't make as much money like i be- like the f- there's a significant decrease between how much money the second film made and the third film made. So they're being smart by not giving this movie a full blown out budget. Mm-hmm. And I guess the way to, you know, I, I think most Hollywood movies nowadays, the biggest the big budgets really consist of cast compensation, pa- paying the cast. And you got two stars like Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth, who albeit are big in big movies, big franchises, they're not box office draws, though, and so that's Paramount's argument. They're not—they're not these big Hollywood. They're every—they're in franchise, yes, but they're popular because of the franchise name. Exactly. I, I mean, you put—I mean, Thor and and um, Thor is popular because it's Thor. Chris Hemsworth, you put him in—you know—we've seen movies like the In the Heart of the Sea, Black Hat, uh, other films that he's just sort of led on his own. They haven't done as well. And same with, with Chris Pine. So Paramount, for that reason and just for the sake of keeping the budget low to to, the, to cover their butts um, for Star Trek Four, are not wanting to pay um, what these actors are asking. And so there is a risk that they could leave the project. And so as it stands, they are in ongoing talks, but they are pretty set on their their demands and are threatening to leave the project um star trek 4 if they don't get the money so yeah pretty pretty messed up huh (laughs) i think it's i think it's tragic because i know there are a lot of people me included who would love to see a fourth star trek Mm -hmm. and especially an adventure between kirk and his dad that sounds like loads of fun Mm -hmm. like just a summer blockbuster i'd love to go watch and just enjoy exactly and if it it comes down to you know are you making 50 million for this movie are you making 15 million that for us for me at least that seems so arbitrary Mm -hmm. if it's a good film and you are in the franchise you should stick with it and to my knowledge at least they are they were still signed into this contract with that package mm-hmm. before this. So they're walking out on their contract right now. Is that correct? 
I believe so. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's it's a very tricky situation because as I said, Chris Hemsworth is not a box office draw outside of the Avengers. Chris Pine is not a box office draw outside of um, Wonder Woman and Star Trek. Uh, and even that with Wonder Woman, if he's not in the next Wonder Woman, I'm not sure there are all that many people who will have a huge broken heart. Exactly, yeah. And they're great actors. No, no one's saying that they're not. Absolutely. Like I think Chris Hemsworth has really come into his own with Thor and Infinity War and Ragnarok, and that's the first time that I've actually like liked Thor. Otherwise, I've never really been a fan of the character. Um, with Chris Pine, he's consistently good in everything he does, um, but he's now looking to, you know, he's been really good at, like, choosing his projects. Like, he likes working with female directors. He likes working on, you know, these big-budget, um, um, very deep emotional movies that, you know, some, some turn out to be really great, like Wonder Woman. Some turn out to be kind of crap, like A Wrinkle in Time. I'm sorry if you liked A Wrinkle in Time, but that movie was not good. Sorry. So... They're in a situation, yeah, definitely a picky, uh, in a pickle of a situation. Um, but it, it seems also unfair to the rest of the cast because Zachary Quinto, Zoe Saldana, Simon Pegg, um, uh, Carl Urban, they're all coming back and they're, they're still negotiating their contracts, but they're not asking for a pay raise because they understand, you know, what Paramount's trying to do uh, and you know, are willing to go with that. I mean, also, it, it's it's Star Trek. I mean, there's so much more to being part of a franchise like this and just getting paid a lot of money. Excuse me. Uh, you're, and you're part of a fan base. You're part of this thing that people love. Like, they, they, we Star Trek fans just had this big convention several weeks ago where they were talking about, um, you know, it was just announced there that uh, Patrick Stewart was going to come back for a new Star Trek series on CBS, uh, reprising his character after 15, 16 years. Uh, and, you know, it's just, it's, 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 the, on the, it's on the same level of Star Wars, it's not as, doesn't have that, um, such a wide, you know, net of, uh, of fans. It's, it's more of this intellectual franchise, and I love that it's an intellectual franchise, unlike Star Wars. Not that Star Wars is intellectual, but it's, it's a different intellectual. This franchise, though, does mean a lot to people, and it's a very... The fans are just as passionate about this franchise as they are any other franchise. So you're signing on to something that means something to a lot of different people, and you're portraying a character who's as legendary as the show itself, James T. Kirk. I mean, it's it's the star of the show. And so, you know, again, that's another argument that you could ask for more compensation because I'm, I'm anchoring this thing. But at the same time, there's so much more to uh, look into. So I don't think they're in the wrong, per se, to ask for a lot of money, but I think there's a lot, there, there's a lot of factors to consider. So I'm hoping, initially, when my gut reaction was like, Paramount, pay them. I don't care what they're asking. Just pay them. You won't regret it. I, I want to see this idea come to light. Just pay them. Gosh dang it. <laughs> so, But at the same time, thinking about it, there's a lot of factors to consider with Paramount, with, with the actors, with the franchise itself. So I guess we'll see how this plays out. Um, but in an ideal world, I would love to see uh, Pine, Hemsworth, on the screen together as father and son. I think it would be the most 
logical choice. <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> I did. I did see what you did there. Awesome. Very well done. Yes. Great. Okay. I'm funny sometimes. All right. <laughs> Topic number three. Um, what was it again? Oh yeah, the we got a new trailer for a remake of a Mel Gibson movie that has a gender swap. Yeah, aren't those movies always just the greatest? Like Ghostbusters. Ooh. Yeah, uh, I'm still not, still not, still not happy about that. Still, Oof. still trying to forgive people. Anyways, <laughs> we got the first trailer for the um, remake reboot of uh, What Men Want, or what? Sorry, What Women Want, titled What Men Want. It um, stars Taraj P. Henson as this employee who works at a sports organization. Uh, and she's about to. She thinks she's gonna get this promotion, and she doesn't. She loses it to a man, and it's like, why are all the men getting all the stuff? And it's not fair. Blah blah blah. Um, and it turns out like she has trouble. Str- she has trouble relating to men, which you know is kind of like the prime demographic in the sports industry. So she's like, how do I? How do I talk? Learn how men think? And then she takes like these drugs or something, and then she gets hit in the head like in the Mel Gibson movie, and now she can hear men's thoughts. And she kind of uses it to sort of get back at men and sort of like play at the men's table, or so to speak. Um, okay. <laughs> okay, I haven't seen What Women Want, starring Mel Gibson, but I know what the movie's about. One of my friends is a big Mel Gibson fan. He told me everything, pretty much. Not the ending, but... I watched the trailers. I kind of pieced together what the movie is. And I got the impression that it's this really charming movie about a guy who learns to respect women. And not just to give them what they want or to exploit them. It's to, you know, it, it, the at the end of the movie, he really learns to, like, earn the respect of a woman, I believe. And it's, it's very admirable for a man in this you know, in this very um, sexually charged society <laughs> uh, where a man is really trying to, you know, impress a woman instead of just look at what's there physically, you know? Um, so, so, I mean, hearing that, I thought, wow, that's, that's a really cool th- message that men specifically need today. Like, we need to, I think men need to be encouraged to, you know, really honor women and respect them and earn uh, earn their respect because that's kind of what relationships are based off of um, from the dawn of the age of time women were seen as were put up on a pedestal because they were seen as holier or you know in, in like another state of holiness than men and the, it was normal for the man to really pursue the woman in a way that not creepy way that shows they're trying to earn their honor you know with this it just kind of takes throw in the garbage let's do something else (laughs) and it's nothing against the cast like Taraj P. Henson I think is hilarious and she's a great performer great actress nothing nothing against her I just don't like this story this story of I'm getting back at men because they've been giving me the boot for several years now, and I gotta, I gotta take my place and sit at the men's table. It's like, come on, 
Not that we need to make a movie about women, you know, trying to earn the honor and respect of men, but you really could use something, something different, something more deep. And, um, cause I mean, the jokes are super cliche. It's not a funny trailer at all. I mean, the only person <laughs> who I thought was funny in it was, um, Tracy Morgan, who honestly can do no wrong. Even if he's in a bad movie like this, he still finds a way to be funny. Um, but like the jokes who, who were. Who is that guy? Tracy who does Morgan. He play? Yeah. He was. Um, he was the guy in the trailer who had like he was joking about like, oh, why do why do I smell toast? Oh, I got a piece <laughs> of toast. In- okay, that that was the one part I think I laughed at in that trailer. Yeah. Even even though like, I think the joke on its own, it's not funny. Guy put. Toast in his pocket. I mean, <laughs> about dumb things, but that is not something that's ever crossed my mind, and nor have I ever even once thought about putting toast in my pocket. It's like, who wrote this? And I actually looked it up when I found out, and it's actually a well accomplished writer up while I'm talking. But it, it's just nowadays, just reaching for the bare minimum like the jokes nowadays are just not funny they're the same they're either sexual they're about disgusting like poop and pee jokes or they're just i mean they're, they're mostly sexual and i i'm just so annoyed with that it's not that they're it's not that that stuff can't be funny but it's kind of it's like now it's reached the point where those jokes are becoming really disgusting and i i personally don't don't appreciate those um i don't know maybe you have a different perspective on the trailer but (laughs) no i mean when i saw the trailer i i honestly before coming in here did not know that it was going it was going to be a uh, gender swap remake and i have not seen and i haven't seen many so this may be completely arbitrary but i haven't seen any gender swapped film that i thought did a good job Mm. yet and it it just seems like hollywood is scraping the bottom of the barrel again to find something they can remake and i i don't appreciate it yeah but for me it seems like when i saw the trailer you know we're coming up we're we're currently going with the me too movement Mm-hmm. And really trying to fix relationships in Hollywood. And this seems like it's going to be a backswing the opposite way. Where, whereas women were not respect bef- respected before, we're swinging the opposite way where men are going to just start losing respect left and right. And I could be wrong, but it just seemed like every single joke in the trailer was just trying to put men down in some way. Mm-hmm. Which, don't don't put people down like that's just an incredibly negative view to have and it's not going to help relationships at all yeah no that's a good point with the me too movement and stuff because i think there are it's definitely time that these things start resolving themselves but at the same time hollywood's been allowing this for years so they're kind of hypocritical in doing this they're trying to cover their asses with excuse me again i'm trying not to swear on the air i'm gonna get better i promise (laughs) um they're trying to cover themselves with all these different moves. And, you know, Harvey Weinstein should have been fired years ago. I mean, Absolutely. just the things he's done Absolutely. are just atrocious and disgusting and awful. 
and it's it's tragic because we're losing some of our like you know some of our heroes in film like Kevin Spacey, and um, you know as as reluctant as I am to still believe it because there's no solid um, testimonies out there. John Lasseter, we lost John Lasseter, and the unfortunate events that have occurred with James Gunn, which I will touch on on my own in, a, in another podcast. But you know all the, all those things. It's like we we have to clean ship. And it's unfortunate that these these things are happening, uh, and I, I'm glad that we're making movies also that are relevant to this issue. But this is just, yeah, really mean spirited, and I don't understand why we'd want to do that. And I just found the writer, um, it's Nancy Myers, who pretty well accomplished uh, writer. She's written and directed um, movies like The Intern. The one with Anne Hathaway and um, Robert De Niro. She's written uh, The Parent Trap. Uh, did she direct The Parent Trap? That's the new Parent Trap. The, sorry, the old Parent Trap. Oh, uh, the Lindsay, the, good one. the Lindsay Lohan one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, she directed The Parent Trap. She directed and wrote The Holiday. She was actually the director of. Oh my gosh, this is blowing my mind. She was the director of What Women Want, the original. Wow. And she, what, did she write this? She wrote it alongside, um, or no, 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 she's the only writer of this. So, mm, that's scary. That's, because she, I mean, she's good. She's, I mean, she, Father of the Bride and Father of the Bride 2. I don't know if, how you feel about those movies, but I, I love those movies. I think I only um, saw the first one. And yeah. that was so long ago, I don't remember. Mm. That's, wow. Okay, um. Well, I mean, I hope maybe we're just seeing it is a trailer and we shouldn't judge a whole movie based on a trailer. So I hope the movie itself is good and maybe there is a lesson to be learned instead of just bashing men. And it's not one of these cliche comedies like, you know, your Melissa McCarthy movies and just, you know, everything else. Like the most original comedy that's come out this year, I think, is Game Night. I loved Game, Game Night. It was great. Loved Game Night. Yeah. I mean, it, it's still played in that realm of like you know the same type of jokes but it was mm -hmm. told in a very very clever cinematic way to where the jokes still kind of landed because of the way they were being presented so and again this my problem with this movie is that they're just being presented in a very atypical way so you know it once movie pass takes its head out of the sand maybe I'll go check out what men want but We'll see. Well, yeah, we'll see. I hope it's a good movie. I hope so. Again, just with the message that the first movie had and the fact that the original director is involved so significantly with writing, let's hope so. <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, that was our top three stories of the week. Just running down the list again, that was the controversial Oscar uh, award being announced, the most popular Oscar uh, Chris Pine, Chris Hemsworth might not return for Star Trek 4 and the first kind of disappointing trailer for What Men Want which brings us to our topic of the week which is cinematography so again um, when Andrew and I met to for him to be on the show we were talking about what we could talk about things that I haven't talked about and you know when I bring on guests, I really want to make sure that when they're here, 
we talk about things that are relevant to them so they actually have a purpose to be here. And so one of the things off the bat that we agreed about was cinematography. And we wanted to talk about specifically the craft in general, what it means to film, and how essential it is to film. Um, movies that have changed uh, cinematography, uh, just going through the years, and then influential cinematographers uh, who have been, you know, integral to that process, and even today are still making strides in the industry. So um, I'm really, I'm going to hand it over to Andrew for him to uh, sort of lead us in that conversation, and we're just going to kind of discuss some of his points. So, uh, Andrew, the the floor is yours. <laughs> awesome, great. Well, so if you think um, you can compare c- cinema to a language. And it's very much how the filmmakers communicate with the audience. And cinematography is just one aspect of that language. But if you think without the cinematography of the, the picture in a movie, you're just going to be communicating to the audience with sound. So it's very much half of your language, so-called. Mm-hmm. And the word cinematography actually means to capture an image. So that is what we are doing when we're talking about cinematography. Nice. And so cinematography, obviously it has rules and those rules must be followed, but that's kind of what has changed throughout the years as we have developed the craft. And so cinematography really started out um Early in the 1900s, they originally just had the camera and it would sit on a tripod, not well either, and it would just be there and they would capture the image as it moved across the screen, towards the screen, whatever. And there wasn't really a purpose for a cinematographer. So one of the big cinematographers who really helped to start this this change in cinematography was Nestor Almendros and he worked with Orson Welles on Citizen Kane which is a movie that you've seen mm-hmm. oh yeah and is a movie that is while a little um boring shall we say it is dated. very is very brilliant in the way it's done. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, as a general rule, you really can't become a filmmaker until you've seen Citizen Kane. Absolutely. Like, it is, according to most lists and professional charts out there, it is the best movie ever made. It's true. And that's just a general list consensus. That's just sort of the general consensus of, like, this is the greatest that was and ever will be. <laughs> I have my personal preference of what, the best movie of all time is, but yeah, you can't you can't do anything in film without seeing Citizen Kane, at least having a vague understanding of what it is. So, sorry, just wanted to make that point. No, you're <laughs> fine. It's absolutely true. And so, before Citizen Kane came out, the filmmaker would position the camera much like you were an audience member watching a play on stage. So, there mm-hmm. were only certain places you could put the camera because otherwise it would confuse the audience as to where you are. And Nestor Almendros really wanted to change that, so he and Orson Welles focused on moving the camera and putting it in places that it had never been before. So there's a very, very beautiful shot in the beginning of Citizen Kane where they go through this sign, 
and down through a window into this, I believe it's a, it's a nightclub or something, where this lady who was the main character's wife is sitting. And it's a shot that had never been done before because you're going through a window, you're going through a sign, literally, and it was something that people had never seen before. But it really brought you into the film and helped you to realize that, oh, this is where we are. We're about to go down and talk to this character. And there's also several other shots where they would actually cut the floor out and put the camera in the floor to look up at the main character, Mm. which was something that had never been done before once again. And so that really started the changes with cinematography and the camera then started to move more freely and cinematographers had the opportunity to begin to experiment with different shots and one thing i should mention now is that cinematography is not just focusing on capturing an image but it's also focused on the lighting of the shot the cinematographer is in charge of the camera and where it goes, but he's also in charge of the lighting and how the scene is sh- is lit. Um, and that also comes into play with Citizen Kane because it's very contrasty. There's a lot of blacks mm-hmm. and a lot of whites, which just add to the film. And so an- another large significant change came with the 65 millimeter um, film that would... This is the epic films you think of, like Lawrence of Arabia or The Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur, where it's just, it should be seen on a screen that's 20 to 30 feet long, and you think, and it's very compressed. You you just described my perfect Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) So that is, that is very much those, those films, and that really changed it because, TV had just become a big thing right around that time and the movie industry had to decide how are we going to bring people to the theaters and have them pay and it was you make the movie so epic that you can't see it on a TV you have to see it on a big screen wow and then a a third big one that third big change I'd like to talk about is 2001 A Space Odyssey Mm. Uh, the cinematographer for that was Jeffrey Unsworth and I'm not sure you knew this, but there are only 40 minutes of dialogue in that film, which is over two and a half hours long. D- didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is, they've really had to focus Jeffrey Unsworth and Stanley Kubrick on figuring out how to tell the story with visuals as opposed to with dialogue and with sound, which was a lot of what other films were focusing on on that time Mm -hmm. and 2001 a space odyssey really set a bar and became a standard that a lot of other filmmakers took from um particularly since you've already mentioned star wars george lucas took a lot of notes Mm. from 2001 a space odyssey in creating the star wars franchise and a lot of the beauty and the glory of 2001 a space odyssey has filtered down through many of the movies we watch today wow can you can you mention like do you know of a specific example of like maybe not shot per shot or like direct copy but can you think of like something specific that george lucas pulled out of um out of 2001 and 
sort of place or something that influenced Star Wars directly? I think probably the epic space shots. Mm. Especially, you know, how all of the, I believe all of the Star Wars films start out in space oh, and yeah. move on yeah, to it's a the planet. Op- it's the opening crawl, then they pan down to uh, to a planet or something, the action begins, yeah. Okay. And so very much that Kubrick has several epic shots that are just in space seeing a planet and that was something that was very new when 2001 a space odyssey came out and i think that's something that lucas saw and was like wow that Mm. really kind of sets your tone of we're we're not on this planet and so i think that is one of the key things that he took from it Mm. yeah i should make a correction um tilt down not pan pan (laughs) tilt i always make that mistake i know people are going to come back and yell at me like that's not what it is so i caught myself i apologize i know it's tilting i know the difference between panning and tilting i know the difference so sorry everybody go ahead (laughs) awesome so cinematographers that have influenced film and there are six that i want to talk about just just briefly mm-hmm. the first is andre tarkovsky and i have not personally seen any of, of his films i know he's foreign i believe he worked in russia but i've seen a lot of the clips from his films particularly um the film stalker and he is was one of the first cinematographers who attempted to tell the story only through his cinematography and so he would really focus on moving the camera and one of his rules was that you always had to introduce something new by moving the camera if you didn't introduce something new by moving the camera there wasn't a reason for you to move the camera so if you watch his shots every time he moves that camera whether it's a glide or a pan something new is being introduced and you will you will see that even though his shots take a very long time i've noticed you are always gleaning new information about the story as he moves the camera Hmm. my second cinematographer is robert burks who worked a lot with alfred hitchcock and specifically a movie i'd like to highlight from that is vertigo vertigo yeah which is a gorgeous film very much touching on how a filmmaker works and the struggles that a filmmaker sometimes has to go through but robert burks really worked with alfred hitchcock on creating very wide shots that told a lot of story with beautiful colors and not only that but we all know how much of a master alfred hitchcock was oh yeah and really helped to tell the story through his shots for sure yeah no hitchcock was incredible and in vertigo specifically i remember watching that movie and just being amazed at um specifically regarding the type of movie it is but just the vibrance because i love movies that are just ham on their vibrance you know just the more colorful the better and it really was this really it was a very um, strange 
yet um, it was a strange yet like welcoming blend of of um, like the I'm trying to think of the genres, but like you know romance and mystery and horror, and they all combined so well to make this this sort of very unique little film. So not um, little in any sense of the word, but. <laughs> You know, it, it was just completely unexpected and just um, definitely caught me off guard when I first saw it. So Absolutely. And it wasn't a popular film when it came out either. Mm. Vertigo was very, very unpopular in the mass media. But going back to Robert Burks really quick, mm-hmm. he and Alfred Hitchcock really experiment with color in the film, talking about how vibrant it was. And you can notice a lot that the specifically the colors red and the colors green signify uh, danger and passion for red and envy for green, I believe. Mm. And if you pay attention to that in the film, it's very, very obvious and just adds a whole nother layer of depth to the story that you wouldn't get otherwise. Nice. A third cinematographer that I really like, which is it's actually a personal favorite for me, is uh, Jean de Bunt. And he was the cinematographer on Hunt for Red October. Ah, nice. Which, Jack Ryan. <laughs> yes. It's a film that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, but they had to come up with a whole new way to film underwater scenes. I don't know. Have you seen the Hunt for Red oh, October? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The You're scenes... talking about the, the Alec Baldwin, Sean Connery movie? Correct. Yes. Yes. Love that movie. And the shots of the submarine underwater, they actually had to figure out a whole entire new way to do that which they ended up doing with miniatures in a room that was smoke filled hmm. in order to give the impression that you were underwater wow so none of it was actually shot underwater correct that's incredible yeah <laughs> and so they faked the entire the entire underwater shots with miniatures of submarines hmm. and they did an incredible job with that wow that's 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 awesome because I'm, I'm a huge fan of old school style filmmaking some miniatures practical effects stuff like that so hearing that is just it's incredible because you you would you would not tell the difference if, unless someone told you so yeah. maybe it's a little tainted for me now that i know but <laughs> <laughs> i mean i've seen it five or six times in my life and never once thought you know that looks kind of like they uh fill the room with smoke and yep. just uh put some put some <laughs> subs on a string and just you know what flying around in the room <laughs> but that's cool that's that's a that's a little bit of trivia absolutely uh Janusz, and i'm going to butcher this name Janusz kaminski but he works you will recognize his work because he's worked a lot with steven spielberg particularly mm. in his uh the midpoint of his career I think saving private ryan and schindler's list which are both just beautifully shot films and incredibly powerful yeah i'm looking at a lot of his recent stuff and yeah he shot he shot ready player one he shot catch me if you can the post crystal skull big bfg yeah so he must be like sort of his most recent like go-to guy yeah yeah and they collaborate really well together Mm. because with spielberg you really never go wrong with his films mm-hmm. he consistently produces at least a fun film that you will enjoy watching right yeah um Maurice Alberti who Maurice Alberti. 
she actually has not had a lot of big films. She Her big one that she finally had the opportunity to be in was Creed, which has mm. some gorgeous shots in it. And just cinematography specifically has had a, a lack of female um, members of that community. And actually there has never been a, an Academy nomination for a female cinematographer yet. Mm. So we are, we are still waiting to get a female cinematographer who will be nominated, which hopefully that's soon. Uh, what about um, Rachel Morrison? Didn't she get nominated for Mudbound? That's that's a good point. I'm not sure about that. Okay, I'll I'll I'll. Will you check I'll, that really I'll, quick I'll, yeah, so I'll, that I'll I can fact check that? Will yeah. not be a. Cause, I mean, you may bring up a point that I don't think anyone's a female cinematographer has won yet. Okay. So, I believe there there may have been some hype about her being the first female cinematographer to be nominated. Yeah. Let me let me double check that. But yeah, sorry. Keep going. No, you're fine. Creed is. It's gorgeously shot, and she mm-hmm. has a she has a style that's very gritty, and realistic, and that really, she never really had a major budget to make that look really beautiful before Creed. So, it's a very unique looking film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I I love Creed. It's partly just because I'm I'm a huge fan of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Rocky franchise is just amazing. But um, yeah, they they brought a sense of um, like an updated like real, Rocky's always been great, ingrained in reality, but they brought it they brought Rocky to a world that is updated for mo- to modern to the modern world, but you know really didn't forget the essence of what gave Rocky its look. So I feel like those two movies are very similar in their look. They both have this dark, edgy look to them, but you know it's just different times you know it was the 70s versus 2015 or 16 Mm -hmm. it was 15 i believe yeah um yeah so okay so i have it here morrison became the first woman to win the new york film critics circle award for best cinematography the first woman to be nominated for the feature category of the academy society of cinematographers outstanding Mm -hmm. achievement awards and the first woman to ever be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Well, there um, we go. I was wrong. I was wrong. No worries, man. There, there's no there's no shame in admitting you're wrong. <laughs> but, I mean, again, no one's... A woman hasn't won yet, which, Correct. you know, I think should happen if a woman... Um, you know, I, I think her work on Black Panther was phenomenal. So, mm-hmm. if you want to nominate her and give her the award, I would not be mad about that. Not at <laughs> all. It was beautiful. And then finally, and this is potentially my favorite is you already mentioned him roger roger deakins the master baby oh man and he is the mastermind between behind um skyfall blade runner 2049 Mm. sicario and numerous other films i think he's working on um dune with with um denny valenu i think let me double check that but i mean yeah just his, his work is just you can't you know, short side, the impact he's had on on cinema and his films, and you know some of the most obscure films that you may not e- that you've didn't even know that he shot. Like I, I, I remember when watching, um, uh, I think it was like the Road to Redemption with Tom Hanks, and I found out that he shot that. I was like, what? He 
he he shot that. <laughs> I I believe he also shot um, Shawshank Redemption too. He did. Yeah, that's right. And so, just he has a beautiful style, and mm-hmm. while it may not necessarily be realistic all the time, it is by far just gorgeous yeah. and beautiful and you will never go wrong watching a roger deakins film Mm -hmm. it's always appropriate for whatever movie he's making like it's it's diverse but he he definitely knows what genre and what and what he's dealing with like because blade runner 2049 is his most recent work and is absolutely incredible like i remember just being so excited knowing that he was going to direct direct shoot a science fiction movie because i was like that that concept just you're telling me that Roger Deakins is going to shoot a science fiction movie. What does that look like? Specifically, a Blade Runner movie. What does that look like? And the first movie I saw of his that really, um, you know, made him prominent in my life was Skyfall. So I'm a huge James Bond fan, fan, and um, that movie just blew me away on every level. It just it just came out of nowhere, and it's my favorite Bond movie so far, and. He really, his cinematography elevated that franchise to this, this pillar of like excellence, because mm-hmm. the script for that movie was incredible, the acting was incredible, and you know, the cinematography could have could have been okay, still could have had a really good movie, yes. but because the cinematography was so, so good, and just hearing about behind the scenes the way they shot those movies, specifically like the end where they're at the house the skyfall house and it's on fire and just wearing the way they shot that it's just it's obvious that a master is at work here clearly and the fact that he's touched franchises like blade runner and james bond is incredible to me i I hope we get to see him do another bond movie because i just mm, i just love to see him do that again (laughs) That that would honestly be amazing and Every single frame that he touches just becomes this gorgeous painting. Mm-hmm. And I cannot wait to see what else he continues to do. For sure. And Sicario, too. I mean, Sicario was... I, I think that's... I thought it looked good. It definitely probably wasn't like my favorite of his in terms of cinematography, but I definitely can appreciate the, you know, the continued excellence in that movie. Yes. Well, that's pretty much all I have. All right, great. Um, yeah, it's it's just again, it's it's a topic that I very I know very little about. I tried my hand at a cinematography class and just found myself not being able to think like a cinematographer because it just requires so much of you and it requires such a different level of thinking that you know I'm a director and I I can think in in regards to shots and lighting but I can't think in the detail that's required as, as a DP or a cinematographer so the people that can you included more power to you guys um I do want to mention a couple just to add to the conversation a couple of my favorite um cinematographers um and I'm just going by movies because I don't follow their work per se <laughs> but um Robert Elswit, who um, the movie I found I discovered him in was um, Mission Impossible: Ghost Protocol, which oh, was yeah. my favorite Mission Impossible movie until last night seeing Fallout. But he did Nightcrawler. He did um, another one of my all-time favorite films, There Will Be Blood, which if you haven't seen There Will Be Blood, 
one, prepare yourself because you're not you're not going to expect what happens. What happens, and two, just go see it. Just watch the movie. Uh, he did Inherent Vice. He did Boogie Nights. He did Punch Drunk Love. He did uh, Mission Impossible Five, Born Legacy. Just you know, so many other great movies. Um, just again, a real master in the craft. And he has this great. Uh, I love movies that. Uh, specifically, that's why I love the Mission Impossible films because they're shot in a way that feels like they're, they're shot on film. So it has mm-hmm. that sort of old school look to it, but it's taking place with modern technology and stuff like that. Um, I guess I'll say, actually, no, I was going to say somebody, I'll save him for last. Uh, Drive is one of my all time favorites, and the cinematographer for that was um, Newton Thomas Siegel, who's done Drive, X Men. X2, uh, Days of Future Past, Apocalypse, The Unusual Sp- Suspects, um, oh, Cars, Cars 3 for some reason, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Superman Returns, The Hurt Locker, um, but Drive specifically, and just the way that they use, again, I love color and vibrance in movies, and the way they used color to um, imply mood and feeling and um, tone, uh, and just... The way that, you know, they shoot, I mean, one of my favorite sequences in Drive is when um, Ryan Gosling's character, in, in the beginning, when he's doing the getaway, um, they talked about shooting that scene like sharks and minnows swimming in the water. Like, the police were the sharks, and the driver was like a fish trying to escape. And I just, thinking about that, it's like, yeah, I see it. I see fish driving down the highway and trying to get away. Uh, so that that scene alone just sort of, to me, recaps like the excellence of Drive. And I, I have a couple of those here, like Skyfall, Downsizing, I think We're Alone Now, Inception. But my all-time favorite cinematographer is, has to be Gordon Willis, who is most known for his work on The Godfather. A gorgeous film. Which is like the second or third greatest movie of all time. It's true. Rightly so. But Gordon Willis just talking about, I mean, he again, he's again because he's cinematographing on such a different level, it's hard for me to comprehend that stuff. But the way he talked about making The Godfather was just so fascinating and interesting to me. And some of his work, um, he did all three Godfather movies. He did Manhattan, Annie Hall, All the President's Men, and he really like more than anybody. I think he also did The Money Pit. That's another one of my favorites. Is a very, very underrated comedy. Um, but he, I think, instilled in me that desire for like old school filmmaking and just that that like that grainy look, mm-hmm. where it doesn't look grainy as in like it's distracting, but it looks grainy as in like it's it has this like ancient and like movie quality movie to quality it. to it. Yeah, like I I no offense to people who shoot on digital stuff like that, but you can't beat that like I love that Star Wars shoots on film I love that Mission Impossible shoots on film I love that like I love that these old movies have that aesthetic to build off of because again Quentin Tarantino shoots on film it's just so ingrained in in film itself and it's it's part of the reason why I love the craft so much is it's just emulating old school filmmaking because that's where it's at and technology is becoming so advanced today where we can do more things that we can but um, I don't know to me like I said I'm old school and so I think I'll always be (laughs) and the digital doesn't necessarily make it better yeah for sure one of the advantages that I think you have with 
film or movies that are shot on film is that your director and your cinematographer really have to know exactly what they want because unlike digital you don't have a you don't have an unlimited amount of of film to shoot on you're mm-hmm. paying for the amount of film you have you have to know what shots you want to get exactly how you want to tell your story yeah yeah so i think that it really challenges a filmmaker a director and a dp to just really think about their story and exactly how they want to tell it so that mm-hmm. they can hone in on that. Yeah, which is I think is a good thing because I think, especially now with the movie I'm producing right now, I think limitations are where creativity thrives the most. Because again, you pointed out, you're shooting on film, you have to be really meticulous about what you're shooting, how you're going to shoot it, and you really only have maybe one or two takes tops to get it. And so that's really fascinating to me and just thinking about what you have to work with and using that to your advantage and to like the nth degree is really where creativity thrives and so I guess I'm working on a film right now that I can't say too much about but I'm producing it Um, it's a monster movie and we're trying to show as much of the monster as we can without showing the entire monster one because we want it we want to instill fear by implying a lot to of course to we want to we we can't afford to make an actual monster so we're making like a leg and an arm or an arm um i still have to figure out what we're doing but it's exciting to have those limitations um so i think because again that's where creativity thrives and where people really get better and better at their craft when they think of creative ways to overcome limits on creativity (laughs) absolutely right anything else you want to bring up or no i think we're good cool it was a pleasure being on the show oh thank you andrew it was a pleasure to have you on so yeah that that about does it for us today um again there's so many great things going on in the world of movie news so many bad things going on again i think um my next episode i know for sure i'm going to talk about it you know my top three whatever that is going to be but i will do just sort of a whole breakdown of what I think about the whole James Gunn situation because I, I am a huge fan of Guardians of the Galaxy. I love those movies. I love James Gunn. I love the franchise. But, it, I mean, it's just too much to get into right now. So I think next week I'm going to do it solo and I'm going to lay it all out on the table, what I think about James Gunn and his situation and what I hope will happen and what probably will happen. So expect that next week for next week's episode. But, um, yeah, Andrew, again, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You're welcome. Um, where can the people find you online, social media? Feel free to plug yourself for whatever wherever people you want people to follow you. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at The Wandering Director. You can follow me on Twitter um, at Andrew Coltsmuke, which uh, may be hard to find, so you might want to check my other places first. Again, that's Coltsmuke. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Andrew Coltsmuke. Also on YouTube, which you can find by searching The Wandering Director. Nice. Yeah, he's done some great stuff, and he has a kick-ass... Come on, let (laughs) let me have kick-ass. Kick-ass is great. He has a kick-ass social media tag name, so I like The Wandering Director. It's so... It's just so much mystery to it. I love it. (laughs) Um, Of course, you guys can follow me on social media. Uh, Instagram at TheBigV75 underscore Vince, on Twitter at TheBigV75, and on YouTube and Facebook at Vince Salerno. It's pretty easy to find. 
All right, so again, next week we'll be talking about James Gunn and whatever else is going on in the world of movie news. Hopefully it's positive, might be negative, but we're going to get through this, guys. The end is not near. Whatever. I don't know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) It's the end of the show. All right, thank you all for watching. I hope you had a great day. Hope you're having a great day. Hope you have a great week. God bless, and peace out.